You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. We will continue on a remorseless mission to squeeze Russia from the global economy piece by piece, day by day, and week by week. One thing, of course, we could also do is to make an open and unconditional offer to Ukrainian refugees to house them in the United Kingdom. We haven't seen all of what Putin's going to do at the moment. We do not know what his end goal is. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Good afternoon, I'm Ewan Potts. On today's programme, we'll be speaking to Labour MP for Exeter and former Culture Secretary Ben Bradshaw and to Halima Begum, CEO of the race equality think tank, the Runnymede Trust. Well, Westminster is waiting for the Chancellor's spring statement and to see if he'll make any major moves to ease the great British cost of living squeeze. Rishi Sunak was handed a bit of a boost as data showed that the budget deficit is running £26 billion below official forecasts, giving him extra wiggle room for spending. Still, any action is expected to be modest. Now, earlier this morning, I was speaking to Tim Pitt, who's a partner at Flint Global now, but he was a former advisor to two former chancellors, Philip Hammond and Sajid Javid, and he told me that rising prices are a real problem for Sunak and the Tories. It's politically nightmarish for, for, for the Tories, and I think the risk is not just the scale of the hit, but how, but how quickly it passes, or rather how, you know, how, how long it stays. We saw under the coalition, for example, you know, people could actually take quite a hit, big hit to living standards for a few years, and it not cause terminal political damage to the incumbent, as long as by the time you get to the election, real wages are rising, which in 2015 they were, and the Conservatives won a majority. I think the the thing that the Tories will be very worried about now is that if you look at the current forecast, that squeeze on living standards is likely to last nearly all the way to the next election, which is why I think think all this talk of 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 an early election is mad. Well, as we focus on Russia's war in Ukraine and the impact on inflation at home, Partygate is rumbling on in the background. The Met Police have begun interviewing key witnesses in their probe into gatherings at Downing Street during lockdown. Detectives have been pouring over written responses from more than 100 individuals involved in the events. A source tells Bloomberg Boris Johnson hasn't been interviewed and the police are yet to issue any penalties. OK, so those are a few of our top stories that we're thinking about this morning. We're joined now by Ben Bradshaw, who is Labour MP for Exeter and also former Culture Secretary. Ben, welcome back to the programme. Thanks for being with Hello. us. Hello. Hello, Caroline. Hi, are you so in terms of the spring statement, what do you think that Rishi Sunak should do uh, in terms of easing what we all know is a cost of living crunch? Well, the two main differences uh, that uh, we would make if we were in government, that's the main opposition Labour Party, is that we would levy a windfall tax on the oil and gas companies who are enjoying record profits and hugely imp- inflated profits at the moment as a result of the soaring uh, oil and gas price. Most other European countries have done that. And that would enable us to help 
uh, families to the tune of about £600 sterling a year with their oil and gas and, and, uh, and energy bills. We would also scrap his proposed increase in tax through what's called national insurance uh, that's coming in because we think now is the very worst time to be putting tax up. And again, there's no other country in Europe that's raising taxes at a time of this record uh, cost of living squeeze. Labour's already in favour of cutting uh, VAT on energy bills. Another party's reportedly happy to back a cut in uh, duty on petrol and diesel. Given the need to reduce uh, reliance on fossil fuels uh, and uh, our climate targets, are you, are you comfortable with those tax cuts? Well, I don't think we'll oppose them if that's what the government does. But I don't think, for example, a cut in fuel duty is the best way of addressing the cost of living crisis, because uh, the difference between cutting fuel duty and doing something about uh, uh, heating cost is that everybody pays heating costs and not everybody pays uh, for petrol. So it's a much more equitable way uh, and, and more efficient and comprehensive way of helping uh, families by helping with their household bills. But look, you know, the, the situation is so grave uh, in Britain at the moment, and people are literally having to choose between uh, putting food on the table and heating their homes that uh, whatever the government do- does, I suspect we will support, but we would like them to go much further. Okay, uh, a windfall tax, of course, is all, is usually rejected by the industry, uh, and that it essentially stops the innovation, the exploration, uh, and the energy transition that these big corporations need to make, and that it is an easy solution, but actually one that damages the kind of long term need for energy independence, and that really is a, a crucial drive for the UK and for the rest of Europe now too. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? That's what they always uh, say. Uh, But, I mean, the sad fact is that rather than invest all these extra profits in innovation and in investment, what the oil and gas companies are doing, are they giving uh, bumper bonuses to their chief executives and huge increases in dividend payments to their shareholders? They're not investing it. Uh, If they were, I think, you know, there might be an argument for not doing it, but there clearly is an argument for doing it. And we need to be investing massively in renewables at the moment, Uh, not only because of climate change imperatives, but also to make ourselves less dependent on dictators, oil and and gas. And uh, the the Conservative government in this country had a moratorium on onshore wind, for example, and that's got to be scrapped. Uh, We need to do much more on onshore wind. It's the quickest, easiest, cheapest way of boosting our energy uh, independence and renewables. And that's where the government's focus should be. Do you think that the pandemic and the hundreds of billions of pounds the government uh, spent at supporting the economy has changed people's expectations of what the, the state is able to do? Do you think people now expect the government to do, to do more for them? Um, I'm not sure that that's the case. And I know it may be too soon to reach a judgment on that. I think, I think people understand uh, that as a result of the pandemic, uh, that money was spent that, you know, would not have been spent uh, in uh, normal times. But I think I think it does remind people that politics is about choices and governments, governing is about choices. And uh, when you have a government that is faced with a choice between uh, you know, a tax increase, for example, national insurance, which falls primarily on people on modest and low incomes in work, um, uh, rather than raising money uh, as Labour would by asking those with the broader shoulders to bear more of the uh, burden, then I think the public do understand that those choices matter. And, you know, it remains to be seen 
where the public is on this, but I suspect there would be massive public support, for example, for a windfall tax on the uh, on the gas and oil companies. And indeed, it, previous Conservative governments have done exactly that. So I think the pressure will remain on the government to do that, not least because, as I say, most other countries, Italy, have done that this week, and most other countries already have. Um, the Prime Minister, there is an idea that there could be a general election next year, as soon as 2023. Would Labour be ready for that? Well, we'll always be ready for a general election. And I'm not sure speculating about the date of an election. It's a favourite uh, pastime of political commentators and pundits uh, in our uh, crazy system, which, which, which allows the government to basically choose the election uh, date. Uh, I mean, I, your guess is as good as mine uh, when the election be. I suspect that the government here will want to uh, continue at least until they get the uh, boundary changes through, which are due to be coming in next year, as I understand it, by the autumn of next year. I, we initially thought it would be July. So I think there'd be strong arguments as to why they would want to wait until after that, because it gives the Conservatives uh, a net gain of about uh, 20 or so seats. But, you know, there may be events and other things, other considerations that Boris Johnson, if he's still Conservative Party leader, will take into account uh, more. Uh, I, I don't think he's out of the woods yet uh, in terms of his own position. So I think there's a lot of great deal of uncertainty about um, about British domestic politics over the next two to three years. Condemnation from across the political spectrum for the, the sacking of 800 uh, workers with no notice by uh, P&O uh, last week. Uh, the RMT uh, claims today that uh, agency staff, foreign agency staff, uh, are being paid less than £2 an hour. Now, regardless of whether that is verified or not, is there more that the government should be should be doing on this? There is, uh, and there was there was quite a, uh, a heated and detailed debate on this in the House of Commons uh, yesterday. And Labour called on the government to do more. I and mean, firstly, to use all the legal powers it does to stop this happening. Secondly, to uh, cancel all the contracts that, that it has with PNO and with its. Uh, partner uh, body for, for these uh, so-called free ports that the British government is setting up all around the country and really do everything it can to pressurise the company. And, and, you know, if that doesn't work, change the law. I mean, the very fact that the French, Irish, Dutch P&O workers are not being treated in this way, I think shows you how feeble Britain's employment laws are after 12 years of Conservative government. And uh, we have tried to get the government to focus on this and to change them and improve them. It's repeatedly refused to do so. Uh, so let's hope this is the wake-up call that the government finally needed to actually do something about this and provide more protection uh, for loyal workers like the P&O uh, staff who've just been chucked out of their jobs at no notice. OK, so that on P&O. Um, just in terms of... Energy efficiency, which again, and kind of coming back to what is clearly the most important thing in the UK, the cost of living, how much more can your constituents do to try to insulate their homes? I mean, this is the, the big factor, isn't it? We have to be able to conserve energy in order to keep bills down. Yes, and we have one of the worst uh, insulated housing stocks of, of any uh, wealthy nation. And, and one of the things that the government could do if it was thinking you know, with this um, better fiscal situation that your uh, correspondent, your, your expert described earlier because of inflation, is if it had money to spare, uh, the, the very best way it could use that money would be for a mass insulation uh, program to help keep 
consumption and bills down. I mean, it's it's a it's a complete no brainer. But unfortunately, it's never really seen as very sexy compared with cutting, for example, fuel duty. But it'd be a much much better use of any spare funds that the Chancellor has in his bag. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, let's have a look at what else uh, people are talking about in the world of politics today. For that, we're joined by our own uh, James Wilcock. Great to have you in the studio, James. So what are people discussing then? I mean, Partygate and police interviews and hoax calls. Exactly. Um, We have been putting the party issue around Boris Johnson's premiership to the back of the agenda because of the many, many, many news items sort of knocking it off. Now, we know today that the police are interviewing the prime minister, well, are interviewing key members who are and witnesses who are involved in the investigation that may or may not include the prime minister. If he were to be interviewed, uh, already the Lib Dem leader, Ed Davey, has said that he should announce it in Parliament that he has been interviewed under caution. So already you can see the opposition are manoeuvring around kind of that idea of a prime minister being sort of held accountable to the law and also it is bringing the issue back into the fore that ahead of the May elections or maybe after in the summer, Johnson will have to deal with this sort of sword of Damocles hanging over him of like a parliamentary inquiry. Another thing that MPs have been really, really interested in is uh, the Telegraph got hold of footage of a prank call that some Russians made to the Defence Secretary uh, Ben Wallace. Um, now, we don't know who these Russians are, but they were asking him about the nuclear programme in Ukraine. And for what it's worth, Ben Wallace said that he supports Ukraine in whatever choices they make, while the sort of the person who was impersonating the Ukrainians was trying to get him to commit to supporting a nuclear program. Now, a lot of MPs are very fascinated by the story because it kind of shows you always could be at risk. Yeah, well, is it prank or is it deliberate misinformation, trolling? I mean, there are lots of different words used to, to describe that call. And we've seen that Pretty Patel reportedly also had her phone hacked into. So there have been a spate of senior US figures, so UK figures, who uh, may have been at risk. Okay, so one day from the uh, the spring statement, not a budget, but plenty of uh, budget-like uh, speculation. What do you think the Chancellor is going to pull out of his box to, to ease the uh, the cost of living crisis? Well, so in the press, we're seeing a lot of rumours, Ewan, about how the Chancellor does not want to be seen as the big spender, uh, to quote Shirley Bassey. Like, after the COVID uh, and sort of the big, big announcements there, he wants to be seen as someone who can be seen as more frugal. That puts him in big contrast with Boris Johnson and Boris Johnson's sort of what they call shadow whipping operation, where he's been trying to rally MPs ahead, of, like behind his candidacy. Um, and we are, what to what? 
watch, I can tell you, is watch on fuel duty, see if there are any cuts there. The A lot of backbenchers and even some cabinet ministers reportedly are big, are not fans of the national insurance contributions as levy taken to sort of shore up NHS spending in the wake of the pandemic. Um, and then the sort of other side of it will be, will he, the Chancellor give in to some of Labour's pressures? Um, one thing that Therese Coffey, the pensions uh, minister, announced yesterday is that the triple lock, uh, which is where pensions will be taken against inflation and other, and other sort of uh, rises, will be in place as of next year, which would be a 7% rise in pensions, right as the rest of the UK is dealing with very difficult questions cost of living crises and the Chancellor himself is worrying about how he funds it all. Yeah, indeed. Lots to think about then. We'll have full, full coverage of Rishi Sunak's uh, mini budget, as you say, tomorrow, the spring statement. That was Bloomberg's James Walcock. Well, last week, the government published the Inclusive Britain strategy with 70 actions to tackle racial disparities and boost opportunities and fairness. But the paper comes a year after a report from the Commission for Race and Ethnic Disparities led by Tony Sewell that denied the existence of systemic and institutional racism, a report roundly criticised by many civil society groups. So is this a government, a complete government rethink on race or a sidestepping of that report, or a denial and false basis for policy. Well, joining us now is Halima Begum, Chief Executive of the Runnymede Trust, the race equality think tank. Halima, thanks so much for uh, joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the government's uh, strategy that, that, that was put forward last week? Thanks, Ewan, for, for having us. Um, I think it's a good start. Let's Let's start with that uh, opinion. It's a good start, but we've we've said that it doesn't go far enough. Um, the reason why it's a good start is is because it appears to draw a line, I think, between um, the kind of very toxic, uh, very difficult conversations around race that, that the Commission on Ethnic Disparities um, initiated a year ago. And government appears to, to have moved away from quite divisive narratives. And that has to be welcomed because... It's in our own interest to move away from these decisive narratives around race and what racism is or isn't, for example. So that's a good start. But moving on from that, um, does it go far enough? Um, there are about 68 or 70 odd recommendations, some of which may be helpful, others less helpful. But let's start with the ones that are helpful. Ethnicity pay gap reporting. Now, that's something that's been on our agenda for a long time. And in, in fact, leading businesses like Zurich uh, Insurance have been um, um, making it mandatory report on ethnicity pay gaps within their organization. So it's, it's a really easy win for government to mandate on. And for some reason, they've only got, gone as far enough to say, well, why don't we offer some uh, useful guidance on it? So we'd say, well, why don't you go further? Because actually, companies are already demonstrating how you can um, report on ethnicity pay gaps and so on salaries. Um, but there are some harmful things in there which we would question and challenge, particularly around the increased uh, police presence in schools, for example. And you only have to look at the situation of child queue today in London to understand why the presence of police in our schools is harmful to race relations. But there are other measures in there, such as the serious violence order, which increases stop and search on mm. uh, communities. And stop and search in particular is, is a flashpoint for our communities because they're disproportionately focused on black and minority ethnic communities. And then overall, um, you, you might sort of say that, you know, there are some helpful measures, but look at the wider legislative agenda that our government is pursuing, which actively harms the rights of minorities. So, you know, on the one hand, some helpful measures, but on the other hand, if you take a whole of government approach, I think we're seeing some measures that are unhelpful. 
Yeah. Um, and just it's interesting, though, that you you see some break uh, away from the Sewell report, which, to remind listeners, found that overt and outright racism does exist in the UK. But according to the authors of that report, is not the main cause of disparities in Britain. So do you think that this is a sort of government rethink here? I, I don't think it's a complete reason. I think it's an attempt by government to try and understand the complexity of disadvantage and uh, inequality in this country. What we'd want to see is government tackling all of the factors that hold our young people back. And they, they tend to be around racism. They tend to be around geographical disadvantage. They tend to focus around class and socioeconomic disadvantage. What we've always argued, Caroline, is that a number of things hold back opportunity in this country, race being one of them. We cannot dismiss the impact of race and somehow elevate the impact of geography and class. Race, class and geography matters to the future of all our communities. What the difference is between now and what we heard about a year ago is I suppose the attempt by business to downplay the impact of racism. Race is one but a very important factor in holding um, young people back. And I think the government appears to have moved away from that position that institutional racism doesn't exist. What it has said, though, is where it exists, and it's proven to exist, we'd like to dismantle it. We think that evidence is pretty obvious, by the way, and is available and exists in in many organisations that have provided good data on where institutional racism exists. So what we'd like to see is support from government on providing more accountability, uh, more uh, more accountability and discipline and punishment where Mm. it's deemed to exist. That's where I think the weakness is in the government's response, because it's not like the evidence is lacking. What we want to see is some peace behind the government's commitment to tackle institutional racism. Now, you mentioned the case of Child Q, the uh, teenage girl strip-searched at school without another adult present in in London. What what would you like to see on policing? What are the key things that you think needs to happen? Policing, I think, first of all, we we look forward to a new... uh, commissioner for the Metropolitan Police and one that understands the seriousness of institutional racism and doesn't actually deny it. Our previous commissioner didn't really believe um, that uh, institutional racism was much of a factor. So the first thing that needs to happen is that the new Met commissioner needs to take institutional racism seriously. And that's all about understanding you and the fact that um, the, the, the sort of cultural stereotypes, the, the norms in which policing takes place is both gendered and sometimes racist. Once you understand that, I think you can actually put in anti-racism training or training around sexism within the force that actually helps our police officers uh, tackle racism and and tackle crime properly and adequately. But if you're not willing to accept that it exists within the force as as a major factor in influencing police behaviour, how do you attempt to dismantle institutional racism? So that needs to happen first and foremost. But I also think we need less police in schools, right? I mean, the human... It's a human condition of life that we know that policing generally tends to deal with crime and discipline. It doesn't really help with learning. 
So if you've got police presence in our inner city schools, I think that's sending a huge negative signal yes. around what we think about the prospects of black and Asian young people. So that needs to stop. And I also yeah. think the case of child Q was also a failure in safeguarding. What we need to see is children's um, safeguarding policies in our schools reflect anti-racism policies. Look at the safeguarding schools, uh, sorry, look at the safeguarding policies of many schools. They don't tend to talk about anti-racism because somehow they see safeguarding separate from um, anti-racism. Well, how can it be? Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.